every now and then you meet someone you just feel an instant connection with. That's exactly what happened to me when I met James Carberry, founder of Sweetfish Media and executive producer and co-host of B2B Growth, a podcast with over 3 million downloads and 1,600 episodes. James has a deep, and I mean deep, knowledge of what it takes to run a successful podcast, and he's built his company to do exactly that, helping B2B brands produce and promote podcasts. Beyond what he and his company do, perhaps the most intriguing part is how they do it. They utilize the power of what James calls content-based networking. Essentially, the theory behind this approach is to determine a business goal. Once you know the business goal, you then identify who can help you achieve that goal. You build relationships with those people by creating content with them. This ingenious and effective approach is outlined in detail in his book, appropriately called content-based networking. And clearly this approach is working because he and his company are well on their way to achieve their mission of educating 1 million people every day through their content. I love this episode. It flies by and is absolutely stacked full of insights that can be applied immediately. So what do we cover? We learn the story behind Sweetfish Media and the candy that inspired the name. James tells a funny and compelling story that helps to illustrate why we shouldn't leave our network up to chance or serendipity. He reveals the formula behind content-based networking, sharing many of the benefits as well as some of the potential pitfalls if not done correctly. He tells us why he thinks Oprah is the perfect example to follow when it comes to shining a spotlight on your guests. He gives us tactical advice for landing guests that will provide value to your audience. And he describes how to build relational equity with the people that you meet through podcasting. But probably my favorite part of this episode are the amazingly helpful interviewing tips that he shares toward the end. These alone are worth the listen. All right, enough from me. Let's jump in to the conversation. James, welcome to For the Love of Podcast. Hey, Billy. I'm super pumped to be here, man. This is going to be fun. Me too, man. To get started, I hope you don't mind. I'm a little hungry. I'm just going to have something to eat. Do, do, <laughs> do you care if I have something to eat? No. Okay. So tell me why you love Swedish fish as much as you do. And when did the obsession start? Man, I don't know if it was if it's a nostalgic thing. I don't know. Like I know my grandpa, who I didn't actually know that well. I think that was his favorite candy. And so I remember hearing that when I was a kid. And then when I became an adult, I was like, oh, grandpa was onto something. Like these are delicious. <laughs> it's actually not my favorite candy now. Okay, uh, which is? is funny because so many people like now that you know the the business has has grown and so there's a lot of people that know that the reason we named the business the way we named it is because of my obsession with Swedish fish, but Red Vines licorice is actually like my go to candy. Okay. But if you ever, Billy, if you ever want to figure out how to hack getting your favorite candy sent to you all the time, just start a company named oh. after it, and I can guarantee you that you will get loads and loads of that particular treat sent to you <laughs> over the course of time. So I wasn't the only one that thought of the idea when you talk about the importance of gifting that you know, <laughs> perhaps I could send you. I, that wasn't an original idea. Darn it. Oh still, man. I got, still super thoughtful and I'm still super grateful, but should I send you a regular pair of shoes then? Or should yes, I send you yes. some? If, if you send me shoes, I probably won't wear them, but I will stare at them a lot. What's that about, man? What, what You don't wear normal shoes? Tell me yes, about I, that. I just, for being in Florida, right? Like the way I define success, which is, is a joke, but it's not 
I always tell people like, I'll measure the success of my life based on the number of days I didn't have to wear socks. And to me, like entrepreneurship has just been a constant pursuit of me trying to pursue freedom, financial freedom, but also time freedom. And so being able to do the things that I want to do with the people I want to do them and wear, being able to wear flip-flops every day to me is just a signal that I'm doing something right because when I'm wearing flip-flops, I'm probably doing something I love and not something I feel obliged to do. So that's where that came from. I love that philosophy, man. Okay. So let's dive in on your company. But before we do, when you think about using content as a means to network and your book, Content-Based Networking, what it really prescribes is this incredibly insightful way of building relationships. Talk to us about how you created this and what exactly it is. Yeah. So backstory on how I kind of back-ended my way to figuring out that this was really effective. When I first started Sweetfish, I had already done a podcast the year prior with my buddy and it was called Inspiring Awesome. It didn't really have a strategic focus. It was just an excuse for me and my buddy to hang out more. Mm -hmm. And there were some cool people that we wanted to interview and some stories that we wanted to share. But I wasn't really thinking too strategically about it. I had a job at a tech company at the time, and I was just like, oh, this will be fun. So we did that. Then I start Sweetfish, and we were actually a blog writing agency for the first year that we were in business. And towards the end of that first year, man, it was a struggle, right? Like in any early business, we're trying to figure out how to price what we do. And I was barely paying myself anything. I think I had one or two contractors that I was feeding some work to, but the business was not thriving by any stretch of the imagination. But we had one particular client. They were a church in Houston right outside of Houston. We were producing really good results for them. It was like BuzzFeed style content, but for their church. So it was like seven date night spots in Rosenberg, Texas, eight things to do with your kids on the weekend in Rosenberg, Texas. And because it was specific around their city, that content was going nuts on Facebook. So the senior pastor at that church would share it on Facebook and it would get you know hundreds of you know engagements because it was hyper relevant to his community. And it was driving traffic back to his church's website. So that was the result he was looking for. And I was like, man, we could do this for every kind of startup church. They call them church plants in that circle. I was like, we could do this for every church plant in America. And Mm -hmm. that could be how we scale this business. And so I was like, okay, how do I get church planters to want to do business with us? Because I don't like cold calling. Like I I, I didn't want to do that. I know you've got a background in sales, but I was just very uncomfortable. Yeah, I'm not into that either. Yeah, like cold calling somebody and being like, Hey, what you want us to do content marketing for you? And so I was like, what if I started a podcast similar to what I had done with inspiring awesome? What if I started a podcast about church planting? And I just asked church planners that I wanted to do business with to be a guest on the show and have me talk, like have them talk to me about their expertise, which is church planting and how they've grown their church in the early days and like what strategies worked, what strategies didn't and create content with them. And then through that content collaboration process, I would build a legitimate relationship so that they would actually want to do business with whether it was on that call or, you know, a few weeks later when I asked like, Hey, what are you guys doing for content marketing? They would be much more receptive to the idea of working with me because they'd already done this content collaboration. We'd established rapport, friendship. like, And so that's how I stumbled onto it. What I realized is that church planners have no money for content marketing. They can barely pay themselves anything. They're definitely not going to pay thousands of dollars a month for some content agency to write content for them. So I figured out pretty quickly that that wasn't going to work. But what my aha was, was like, 
This didn't work because I didn't really know who our ideal buyer was. But for a B2B company, a company that's selling $25,000 or higher ACV, like annual contract value, if this strategy could work exceptionally well for that kind of company. And so we repositioned ourselves from being a blog writing agency to being a podcast agency specifically for B2B brands that knew who their ideal buyer was. And we helped them brand shows, not around them, but around their ideal customer so that they can then go interview their ideal customers on their show, create great content while simultaneously creating one-to-one relationships with guests that could ultimately make a buying decision for their product. Well, what I love about your story is there's several things. One is that you had your initial podcast. It was great to get get things in motion. Yep. I did, this, did the same thing with my show and kind of feel quite similar in a lot of ways. It's great learning. And then yep. you, you made the pivot and you saw a need. You saw you were helping this church. And through helping the church, you saw a model that existed that could yep. be very fruitful. But what you realized was that the fruit wasn't there because let's face it, their budget's not there. And then I would say, give you huge props is that you said, who does have the money to pay for this? And you really went laser focused to a B2B type of focus where you know who your target audience is. Some of the things that I've learned just in reading your book is be able to say what your business is, know who your audience is. The other thing is just the importance of not leaving things up to chance. Yes. Dude, I love your story about Jeff and how, just tell that story. In 2008, my roommate, brother-in-law, he won a sweepstakes through Altel, the old phone company that I think has been acquired multiple times since then. He saw a commercial on TV. It was like, hey, text football to 1-800-whatever, and you can win an all-expense trip for you and nine friends to a professional football game of your choice. Yeah. We all see those commercials right, and we're right. like, nobody actually wins those. Yeah, right, right. But my roommate's brother-in-law won it. And he didn't have a lot of friends in the area. He had just moved to Oklahoma City and his brother-in-law was really, he was one of his closest friends in the area. And so he went to his brother-in-law, who was my roommate, and he said, hey, find nine of your buddies and we're going to take a private jet to New York City and go watch a Giants-Cowboys game in a suite with, you know, right next to Jerry Jones. And I was like, what are you like? Of course, I'll do that all day, every day. So we load up in the jet a couple months later. We go to this game. Barry Sanders is on the tarmac waiting for us whenever we land. So that's insane. And we end up going to the game and we spend the entire day really walk going through New York City. So I'll tell like took us to Carnegie Deli. They took us to the Empire State Building. They did all this stuff. It was awesome. And the guy that was running the logistics for the trip, I just thought he was like an Altel rep. I didn't really think anything of it. This guy's name was Jeff Flournoy. And turns out Jeff is the CEO of a global logistics company that has Altel was essentially his client. And he does stuff for Sprint and for a bunch of other telcos and a bunch of like Verizon. And and they do transportation logistics at large events. So it does a lot of stuff with the NFL, with NASCAR, all these different things. And, you know, I, I found that out kind of throughout the court, like towards the later back half of the day. And I was like, oh man, this is awesome. Like this guy, I could talk to this guy all day. I mean, you just got interesting story after interesting story. So I develop a friendship with this guy, get to the end of the night, not thinking anything of it. We get back on the jet to go back to Oklahoma. We swapped contact information. About a year and a half later, we had stayed in touch. I think we had talked one or two times. A year and a half later, he asked if I would move to Orlando and run the helicopter division of his business. I remember like exactly, I was in a cubicle in my little office for the oil and gas company that I was working at the time, just hating my life. I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, this serendipitous relationship that I created because of the sweepstakes that I won ended up mapping to a life-changing 
experience for me. Like I moved across the country to Orlando, a city I'd never even been to before. Orlando is where I met my wife. I ended up becoming an entrepreneur because Jeff influenced me to pursue entrepreneurship, working for him for three years. I had no exposure to entrepreneurship prior to him. So we were talking about it offline. Like I didn't grow up selling baseball cards and like I wasn't doing the lemonade stands. Like the reality of what it was like to be an entrepreneur was very new to me because I'd never had exposure to it growing up. And Jeff very much influenced where I'm at today. And so because of that one serendipitous relationship, my entire life changed. So I think back to that story and I think how much of it, it's a shame that there is that kind of opportunity that is hidden inside of serendipity. What if we didn't have to depend on serendipity to create relationships that could have life-changing impact? And that's where this strategy really fits in. You know, we call it content-based networking. That's what I named the book. So we call this approach of like, hey, if I knew now what I knew then, I would have found owners of really awesome businesses that I got to do helicopter logistics for NASCAR for three years. That was what I did for Jeff's company. And if I would have had that kind of insight back then, I would have started a podcast or a series of LinkedIn articles or a YouTube series. Like I would have started some sort of content series and I would have found people like Jeff, people that owned really interesting businesses. And I would have featured them as a guest on my show, done some sort of collaborative content with them, built a relationship with them that way, as opposed to having to serendipity, like depend on the serendipity of right. meeting him on the sweepstakes. And so that's what, that's what we spend our days now doing is trying to teach our customers, like you don't need to serendipitously connect with these people at events or at these different things that companies are doing to try to connect with their ideal buyers because more and more so people are not answering the phone when you call them. They're not responding to your cold email. But if you actually had a relationship with these people, they would be much more likely to want to engage with you. And the way you create that relationship is by collaborating with them to create content. Don't wait for chance. We could be so yep. intentional. You yep. know, they say for a book to be successful, it needs to have a big idea. And your book has this big idea and you've broken it down into a three-part formula. Can you talk about that formula? Yeah. So, so I think the, the first part of this is you've got to figure out your goal. What are you actually trying to accomplish? With B2B Growth, with our show, we started B2B Growth right after we made the pivot into becoming a podcast agency. The goal was... I want to connect with decision makers that can buy our podcasting service. So that was my goal. Then the second part of the framework is I had to nail the people. Like who is it that I specifically, who do I want to connect with so that I can have the opportunity to talk to sell our service? And that was when I had to get real granular. I actually screwed it up at first. I thought it was going to be VPs of sales. So I thought, man, what sales leader would not want to have a podcast that their entire sales team could be a co-host of and their entire sales team, instead of saying, hey, can I get 15 minutes of your time for a demo? Instead, they would say, hey, I'd love to interview you for our podcast. Would you want to jump on a 15 minute call? They, their response rates would go through the roof. Turns out, VPs of sales, they pretty much have budget for technology and headcount. They don't have budget for anything that smells like marketing. Their marketing counterpart obviously does. So we did like 150 episodes of B2B growth 
where we featured VPs of sales before I figured out, hey, this isn't going to work. We should probably start asking VPs of marketing to be guests on our show instead of VPs of sales. Fortunately, we didn't have to change the brand of the show because B2B growth works both for sales and marketing. So it made sense. We were able to make that shift pretty easily. But the people part of this framework is critical. And I don't want people to get caught up thinking that they have to be convinced of who the right people are because we didn't. I mean, we, we missed yeah. it at first, but through doing these interviews, you're going to realize pretty quick, like, Hey, these are the people I need to be talking to, or these are not the people I need to be talking to. Hopefully it doesn't take you 150 episodes. I'm dense and have a very, thick <laughs> you than got there, man. You got there. what I hope it takes other people. But so you've got to figure out your goals. You've got to figure out who are the people you need to connect with. And then the third piece of it is the content. So we see so many companies that screw this part up. They, they know who their ideal buyer is. They know that their goal is you know, to win new business or, or to build strategic relationships with referral partners, or maybe your goal is that you want to connect with influencers because you want, you know, you're using it for PR. And so you want a bunch of influential people talking about what you do. But when you make your show's content about yourself and about your expertise, instead of about the people that you're trying to connect with and their expertise, you isolate yourself from being able to talk to the right people. So for example, B2B podcasting is our expertise. But if we'd have named our show, the B2B podcasting show, instead of B2B growth, I would alienate myself from being able to interview a VP of marketing in a SaaS company with 75 employees. Because if they don't already have a podcast, they have nothing to talk to me about. They have zero expertise in B2B podcasting like I do. So many companies want to brand their show around them. And instead they just use it as it's like a giant megaphone to talk about what they're great at, but they're not necessarily interviewing their ideal clients and building relationships that could map to revenue for them. So we see it happen all the time. And it's something that if I could shout from a mountaintop, like do not brand your show around yourself, brand it around the type of people you're wanting to connect with, man, I would shout that message from the top of a mountain seven times a day if I could. I think it's a key distinction to make. And one of the things you highlight is the importance of shining a spotlight on the other person. And that person should be in the spirit of what you're talking about, should be a potential client for this to really work. And the person you reference a lot in your book is Oprah. Yep. And you talk about the power of what she's been able to do. Share a little bit about why you used her as an example for what you think would help anyone who's starting a podcast help to really define that spotlight and the, and the importance of it. Yeah. So, so Oprah's a fascinating person and, you know, for the book, just look, studying her story and kind of her upbringing. She's got a very captivating story. Oprah's not a household name because of how captivating her story is. Oprah is a household name because she shines her spotlight on people that we all know and love, Tom Cruise and Billy Crystal. And there's a catalog of incredible stories that she has shown her spotlight on over the course of her career. And because of how she's approached those interviews, she's led with empathy and understanding, and she asks incredibly thoughtful questions. She explores the nooks and crannies of their life that a lot of other reporters or journalists don't explore. She's very vulnerable in her her approach to these interviews. And because of that, the content ends up being very captivating, very compelling. And it makes the person on the other end of that 
want to talk to her more because mm-hmm. she's so interested. I mean, you're doing a phenomenal job, Billy, just in this interview. Like I can feel on the other end of it that, man, you've read the book, you understand our strategy, you've seen some of my content on LinkedIn, like, and that is shaping the way we're interacting right now. What makes me like you a lot because you clearly care about me. You've you've done you've done research about me. And that's in the book what I wanted to make sure to reinforce. Like Oprah did a fun, I mean, she built her entire career on the same approach that you're using with this show, with me and with other guests that you've had here. Like, we're gonna walk off this interview and I'm gonna wanna freaking hang the moon for you. Like wow. you you could ask me to do anything and I'd try to figure out how to do it for you because you've done the work on your end to make sure that I look like a rock star on your show. And I, that's a, that's a tough undertaking to make, <laughs> to make me look awesome. Dude, I've been, I've, been, I've been waiting to meet with you, man. I'm like, dude, I love this guy. I'm like, <laughs> we're, like we're like buddies. I, 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 can, I can just tell I'm like, this guy's so genuine. He cares so much. He's just got a heart of gold. So, so thank you. I appreciate it. I do pride myself on the research part. But it was easy for you, my friend. It was easy because I was like, this guy's the most likable guy. I'm like, oh my God, I've, did I just become best friends and he doesn't even know me? <laughs> yeah, that, that's what Oprah did so well. And that's why I talked about her in the book is because what we what I see, you know, it's really easy to take content-based networking to a place that's kind of icky and gross. And you're like, ooh, I want to get new clients with this approach. So I'm not really going to care anything about them, but I'm going to trick them into doing this interview with me, which is really just a, a veiled discovery call. And that to me is completely ineffective. That may work for you two, three times, but like eventually the gig's going to be up on that. Like people are going to see right through it. They're not going to think you're genuine. They're not going to want to talk to you again because they're like, oh, this guy just tricked me into getting on the phone with him. He didn't know anything about me. He didn't ask thoughtful questions. There's nothing special about this experience that made me actually want to help this person out at all. Where if you put in the kind of thought that you put into your interviews that Oprah puts into her interviews, it is going to build an enormous amount of relational equity between you and the people you're interviewing. And that relational equity is what you want. That's mm-hmm. actually what's going to map to results for your business. So whenever, whether you release a course or you're, you're, or you release a product down the road, like you've got an advocate in me now because of the experience that we're going through right now. And it's not rocket science to do what you and I are doing, what I'm doing with B2B growth, what you're doing with this show. Like anybody can do it. And Oprah did it exceptionally well, which is why I talked about her so much in the book and everybody knows who she is. So it's a great example to share. You had mentioned, Billy, like this works when you're trying to acquire new clients, but I also think it works when you're trying to land a job. I was literally right before we jumped on here, I was on a call with somebody who's looking to get a, they, they've been a director of content marketing for about a decade and they want to get into the VP of marketing role. And I was like, Hey, go start a content series on LinkedIn, a series of articles, find five or 10 of the companies you want to be the VP of marketing for that, you know, they're looking for a VP of marketing, go and interview their CMOs about what they're doing from a marketing perspective. And it doesn't have to be a podcast. It doesn't have to be a YouTube series. It could be a series of LinkedIn articles. This guy's a great writer. So like that's a medium that works for him. Like reach out to the CMOs of those companies. And instead of saying, hey, I'd like you to hire me to be the VP of marketing, say, hey, I'm doing a content series on LinkedIn about exceptional marketing and I would love to interview you. Could we jump on a 15 minute call to talk about some of the things that have worked really well as you've built the marketing team at 
XYZ company. And by doing that, it's just that little shift. That's right. Instead of leading with, hey, I want to sell you something or I want you to do something for me, you're leading with, hey, I want to shine my spotlight on you because you're doing something really special that I think a lot of other people should know about. That tiny little shift is the difference between somebody responding to your email and actually wanting to engage with you and them completely ignoring you. It's not rocket science, but a relationship, as you pointed out, is a rocket ship. Yes. And the way in which we invest in those relationships is the fuel for those rockets. And I yes. totally agree with you that if you're not careful, this strategy can completely unwind and backfire. If you're going in with the motive that this person is going to be my customer. No, they may be your customer, but they may also be a person that hires you. They may be a person that you- Is a referral for you. Referral may, for yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. Or they might just be somebody that regularly engages with your content on LinkedIn, which helps your content get in front of more people because it's getting engagement from people that know, like, and trust you. Like there are a variety of ways like to shoehorn and to think, oh, I only want to interview somebody that could absolutely become a customer. I think I see a lot of people that they chase influencers with their podcast. Right. And they're like, they go out of their way to try to get Gary Vee or to try to, you know, to try to get Jay Bear or, you know, all, all these big names in whatever space they're in. And I think that is a mistake that a lot of people are making. I've had Gary Vee on the show, I've had Simon Sinek on the show. And those episodes actually perform were some of our worst performing episodes. So I, I think a lot of the illusion is, oh, if I can get Gary V on my show, he's going to promote it to his audience. And then I'm just going to get this flock of new subscribers. But Gary V is famous because he creates his own content. So he's busy promoting his own content and he should be. So he's not going to give, he might do you a favor of being on your show like he did for, for me, but he's certainly not going to spend any energy promoting that content. Maybe 50 people end up seeing it because he puts it in an Instagram story or I get a cameo in a daily V series, but it's much smaller than, than you think. And so to build your entire strategy on what influencer can I get on my show as opposed to how can I actually interview the practitioners at companies that can legitimately make a buying decision for my product or service, that's a much smarter play. The content's going to be way more relevant to the other people that you want listening to the show. And that relationship can actually turn into revenue for you. Yeah. I may check off a life goal for meeting a, a man crush like Gary Fee, which I, like you, have readily admit that I'm super inspired by his work and yeah, great to have him interviewed. But to your point, if you're an advocate for your audience, and I love that you talk about being an advocate for your audience. I've talked a lot about this on the show. Jordan Harbinger talked about that on the first episode. It's just so critical that we're always thinking about the audience and thinking about how we can serve them, providing them with actionable, tactical things that they can actually go apply, right? And, and yeah. Gary Vee may provide a few of those, but he may be promoting something. He may be talking about something else. And he may only give us, you know, a certain amount of time, right? I know you had a limited amount of time for your interview with him. Let's talk about the landing guest part of this whole equation because yeah. you do outline a seven-part system. And I'm not going to ask you to recite all of them unless, <laughs> unless you can, which by all means go for it. But maybe yeah. give us some highlights. I love the tips that you gave. And so I'm curious what your suggestions are. Yeah. So, so you've got to be thoughtful about the subject line and particularly the first, I don't even know if I talked about this in the book, but like looking at your email through the lens of how the person on the other end is going to see it on their phone. Mm, so like I, if, if I'm working on a subject line, I'll, I'll literally send it to myself 
Maybe okay. it's too long. Maybe it gets truncated in mobile. Maybe now I think on some phones now it truncates. So it goes or it doesn't truncate. It drops to the next line, but actually like writing out the email, sending it to myself and seeing like, okay, what's the first sentence? What do they see in that first sentence? What do they see in the subject line? And I'm looking for, is this going to be something that's going to make them want to engage with it? If, is it all about me or is it all about them? And the other piece that I see people screw up with outreach, they think that they need all of this social proof about why this person should want to be a guest on your show. Now, if you're going after influencers like Gary Vee, that makes sense, right? Like Gary's getting asked to be on everybody's podcast. So if you're not getting 100,000 downloads a month, it's probably not worth his time. So you end up stacking your emails full of all of this, like, oh, we've been featured in this and that, and we have this many downloads and yada, yada, yada. But if you're doing it the way that I advocate for, and you're going after your ideal buyers or people that are much more strategic relationships for you to build for your business, then those people are not being asked to be on podcasts very often at all. And so if you write a shorter email and you say something like, hey, Billy, love what you're doing with your business. I would love to feature you on an episode of my podcast, up for it, question mark. And so that very clear, like up for it, question mark as a call to action in the email and the email only being two or three sentences, that has produced phenomenal results for us where I get pitched all the time for people trying to be a guest on B2B growth. And if they wrote me a two or three sentence email, I would be significantly more likely to respond to them than these 18 paragraph emails that I get that I'm like, I'm not going to read this. Like at the end of the day, <laughs> like I, I don't, I just don't care. But I think to zag when everybody else is zigging, one of the ways to do that is just really short. If you can, if you can send a one sentence email or even like I know this is something Gary Vee does. If you can send an email that is literally just the subject line and it's asking the question in the subject line, that's a super ninja move. I haven't started doing that at scale yet, but I think it would work because it's just about standing out to me and trying to reverse engineer how can I actually get a response? And so many people I've found just don't think that critically about it. They send out these long emails that don't even really have a clear call to action at the end. They're not asking a yes or no question. That's one thing I put in the book is like, is your question a yes or no question? Can somebody easily answer your question? Because if they have to think more right. than three seconds about how they're going to respond to this, they're likely just going to skip it. They're not going to respond at all. So those are some of the tips that I share I there. I love those, man. Hopefully are, are super helpful. Well, uh, having worked with a lot of busy people in my life and having been a quote unquote busy executive, time is of the essence. And I know why Gary Vee does this because I've had a lot of leaders that I've worked with who've done the exact same thing. It's just a subject line and that's it. Yep. I love looking at it from the lens of the person who's getting it because I do think there is a nuance and maybe it's not a nuance. Maybe it's more than a nuance between somebody that never gets asked to be on a podcast and maybe more the influencer and, and thinking about the subject line and sending it to yourself first so you could kind of look at it from the perspective of who it's intended for. I really think that's fantastic advice, super tactical and something that I haven't done, but I will do going forward. Your last bit of advice there is that it can't, be ambiguous about what yeah. you're asking for. It's got to be crystal, crystal clear. Another mistake that you highlight, which, man, this is sort of a pet peeve of mine, is this like 
questionnaire. Hey, you're going to be on my podcast. Okay. Now you need to write out your entire life story and do all the work for me, dude. I don't want to steal your thunder, man. Tell me about that. You took the words right out of my mouth, man. (laughs) Like when I have to give you my headshot and my bio and my mother's maiden name and answer these five questions on a Google form, you're putting so much effort on me. And from my perspective, like when when you're asking someone to be a guest on your show, their perception is that they're doing you a favor, right? Like now from the perspective of the host, it's like, man, I'm doing you a favor. I'm shining my spotlight on you. I'm giving you exposure to my audience. I'm doing all this stuff, but you've got to think how they're thinking about it. And from their perspective, like when I go ask a VP of marketing, as valuable as I know it is to them, and I know it's valuable because they wouldn't have said yes if it wasn't valuable to them. So I know it's valuable. But from their perspective, they think they're doing me a favor. Mm-hmm. And so you have to play into that. And that comes down to like not asking them to to give you a crap ton of stuff on the on on the front end because that feels like, oh my gosh, like I don't know, maybe I don't have time to do this. The other thing is how you go about sending your calendar link. So we have a very specific link that we use to book guests on the show, but you've got to be careful about, especially if your show's new and you don't have much listenership in the way you frame it. One of our producers, actually, I was just talking to her about this because she just started her own show and I had introduced her to a couple people and they're like, oh yeah, sure. I would love to. And she just sent them her calendar link. And I was talking to her later. I was like, hey, from their perspective, they're doing you a favor by being on your show. So you just sending them a calendar link instead of saying, hey, do you have a calendar link where I could find time that works for you instead of just sending yours. It's a subtle shift, but it implies that you value their time and that you want to make this as easy as possible for them by simply saying like, Hey, do you have a calendar link we can use to get this scheduled? If not, here's a link to mine if it makes it easier, but you're always leaning on how can I make it easier for them? And I think that's a really important distinction that uh, a lot of people don't necessarily get to intuitively. And so hopefully I can, I can save you some heartache by listening to this a little trick. You know, the other part of that is you send somebody a link and they just sit on it for days, weeks, months, and they just don't take action. I've had that happen with one person and they haven't done it yet. I realized that it makes so much more sense if I could get their link or even just get a couple dates that would work for them because you're putting the onus on them. But if I could be in control, it's better. You can make it happen. I want to pivot and talk about interviewing and specifically this concept and this insight that I absolutely love, which is you are a journalist. Think about it. You have curiosity, passion. You're relentlessly focused on putting out great content, connecting with people on a human level. These are your words, by the way. You're able to use your expertise. And so- yep. These are the the words that you've used to describe a journalist, but also a podcaster. What are some interviewing best practices that you found helpful to really do all those things that I've just mentioned? Just get your general insights because you've done hundreds and hundreds of interviews. I know you've passed the baton to to your colleagues after doing 800 episodes. You're entitled, my friend. Yeah. (laughs) So, so you've done it. You've done the work. Um, yeah. So, what's so really, I'll, I'll talk about two different things. And these are actually pretty recent things that we've developed. Um, we used to have a different approach to interviewing, but recently we figured out a, another approach and it's a combo of two different methodologies or strategies. One is POV discovery. POV stands for point of view. And I found that like for content to be great, you have to figure out what is your guest's 
distinctive point of view? What's a unique point of view that they have that would make the content interesting to the market that you're trying to serve? The second thing is once you've discovered that POV, and we've got some questions that we ask to do that, that I can go over a little bit later. But once you've figured out what it, what is that POV, now you want to build out the interview structure. And the structure we use for that is something we call what, why, how. And so there are different questions you can ask. It's pretty straightforward getting to the what. It's just getting them to basically state what their point of view is. But then digging into why, why is this something that people should be doing? And how can people actually do this? And so you're allowing your guests to really articulate, fully articulate their point of view in such a way that it could actually become very useful for someone on the other end, as opposed to where a lot of folks will sit. It's very high level and fluffy and not super actionable. But when you structure your interviews with POV discovery at the top, and that usually maybe it's a pre-interview. So you do like a 15 minute call with your guest independent of the actual episode. Maybe you do it on the actual episode. You just schedule an hour and the first 15 minutes of the call is POV discovery. And then you hit record and do the interview. But POV discovery combined with what, why, how we have found produces phenomenal content and you don't actually need to be that much of an expert. So when you use content-based networking, the way we say to, right, like I've never been a VP of marketing. I don't know the first thing about being a VP of marketing. I'm a founder like, and I just happen to sell to marketers. Using this allows me to figure out like, what is the POV of my guest even though I've never sat in their shoes, I can get them to tell me what is their point of view. And then I can walk them through this methodology that allows them to articulate that. The POV discovery questions, the three that I found are the most helpful uh, are what is a commonly held belief in our industry or related to your expertise that you passionately disagree with? And so I was talking to a guy this morning and I literally asked him this question. He's an expert on thought leadership. So he works with a bunch of Fortune 500 companies and he helps them build out the thought leadership function within their company. That's cool. And so I said, what's a commonly held belief about thought leadership that you passionately disagree with? And he, his response was really good. Um, and the reason I think this question is so powerful it instantly gets them to a place of going against the grain and not just saying what everybody else is saying. So one thing is, you know, being a VP of sales in your past life, sales and marketing alignment is one of those things that everybody and their mom in the B2B space wants to talk about. I don't want to touch that topic with a 10 foot pole unless your POV is why sales and marketing should not be aligned. <laughs> because everybody else is telling me why why sales and marketing needs to be aligned what like i already know it needs to be aligned tell me something different asking a question like that what's a commonly held belief around insert here that you passionately disagree with it gets people giving you that good stuff that you're like man i could build an entire episode around this the other two questions are pretty similar the first one is what should everyone in our space stop doing or what should everyone in our space start doing? By asking those questions, you're setting your guest up to talk about something that's very actionable. So that's POV discovery. Again, you can do that in the pre-interview process, or you can do it right before you hit record. Same call, regardless of whether the pre-interview is a separate call or not. I actually think that doing a separate pre-interview allows you to build more relational equity with the person. I think there's something magical about the second time you interact with somebody. It feels more like a friendship 
than just meeting someone one time. So that's something we've learned over the years. But POV discovery and then what, why, how is a really magical formula for doing interviews. Gold, pure gold. Love it, man. I'm going to have to listen to this myself back like 10 times just to make sure I got it all. <laughs> One thing that, that stood out amongst many things is that we often live on this fluffy, generic sort of like superficial level and don't get granular. You offer a couple questions. One is, can you break that down a little bit more? Another one is, can you give me an example of what that means? What are some other ways to get more granular and laser focused? Like let's, let's turn the table. So I'm you, you're me. You just said yeah. all those things. What would you say to you, if you were me, to get more granular about the topic that you just talked about? We've got an article that I'm pulled up right here I'm looking at, and there are some specific why questions that you can ask to dive into the why of their POV. So it'd be like, and these questions don't necessarily all need to start with the word why. Why is really getting to the theory, the reason, the rationale behind their POV. So some of them don't start with why, but the, the there's like, why do you think everyone does whatever, whatever it is they're advocating for or, or whatever the thing is that people should stop doing? Um, why should they do what you're suggesting? Why does it work better? What results have you seen? What results do you think listeners should expect? Why are people stuck in whatever the bad behavior is? So those are all great kind of why questions that allow somebody to explain the theory, the reason, or the rationale of their point of view. The how questions, these are designed to get the guest to share like an action guide, a strategy, or even common pitfalls that people need to avoid. So like, how does someone hearing this for the first time take action? Uh, for someone wanting to do this, what's step one? What's step two? How could someone wanting to follow along with this approach easily get this wrong? So again, that's speaking to the pitfalls that we want people to avoid. That's really actionable. Um, how does someone copy what you're saying in this type of situation? What should everyone doing this watch out for? Again, pitfalls. So anytime you can get like step by step, like, okay, somebody wants to implement this tomorrow. What's the first thing they need to focus on? And then listen to the response. Okay, what do they do then next? The combination of those why and how questions coupled with a really strong point of view that your guest has, I think are going to make for a fantastic piece of content. And you're, you're guiding them down the path to provide step by step and very specific instructions on what they should be doing. Yep. It's crazy, Billy, what, what happens when you do this. So a good friend of mine, he's a children's book author, and he interviews people that are on the boards of statewide literary associations. And when he asked these questions, again, these are people that are not being asked to be on podcasts like ever. That's and right. so when he asks them these questions, the aha moment that they're having and realizing like, oh my gosh, I actually have really good stuff to share. Like I didn't even necessarily think that my insights and wisdom in this area would be valuable to a lot of people, but man, going through this process and doing this interview for my buddy's podcast books for kids, it awakens in them something that's so real and they credit him 
for that kind of awakening and the realization of their value as somebody who's been a practitioner, an educator, or an administrator, or whatever. I just think, how incredible is it that we, as people hosting podcasts or whatever content platform you choose to do content-based networking with, how cool is that? That we can add value to people's lives in that way, that we can awaken them a sense of like, you have value to add to this community through the thoughtfulness of our questions. What do you think are, you know, you're, you live in this space, you live in podcast land and you are working daily to help people make great podcasts. What are the biggest mistakes you're seeing people make and why do you think they're making them? Is I think people should not be thinking about their show in a silo. And so something we've recently started doing at the end of our interviews, when we talk to a VP of marketing on B2B growth, we have a list of 12 questions that we've started asking them. Now we do it in a kind of a separate recorded call, but it's the same. Hey, you mind if we ask you these 12 questions? We don't include it in the podcast, although I think we probably could and it would still work out fine. Mm -hmm. What we're doing is we're doing original research. So we're asking questions like, you know, what's the marketing channel that's produced the best results for your brand in the last six months? Who's a marketing influencer that you're most influenced by? What's an underrated marketing tactic that you're seeing incredible results from right now? And by asking these 12 questions to a hundred or so B2B marketing leaders that we're interviewing on the show, we're actually going to develop a paid product that we're going to charge 300 bucks a year for marketing leaders to subscribe to because we're going to turn all that data and we're going to turn it into infographics and slide decks and really compelling original research that is going to allow us to diversify our revenue. But if you're a company going, eh, we're not trying to be a media company, we don't need to diversify our revenue but we just want to do this original research because it's great top of funnel content. You should absolutely be using your podcast to create original research. But I think a lot of people just think about their podcast through the lens of it being a podcast and not it being a flywheel to create tons of different content, like micro videos on LinkedIn, articles that you create. And then original research is one that I don't hear a lot of people talking about, but we're about to go all in with it. We've got, I think, 33 or 34 people that have responded that we've gotten data from, and we're going to get to a hundred before we turn it into a start doing our first original research project, but I'm really excited about it. So it's top of mind. Not only is it a mistake that they're not doing it, but what a great tip to do it. And you are stacking information like you stack relationships. You yeah. follow the African proverb. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Yep. Life is a relationship. The yep. rest is just details. And I hope that through this first interaction that we can become friends. I thank you for your time. I could talk to you for 16 hours. <laughs> well, hopefully we could do a follow-up at some point because I only scratched the surface of the amazing ideas uh, that you have. And so, James, people can find your company, Sweetfish Media, and they can take advantage of the amazing service that you have and that you've built to help them launch, produce, and create incredible podcasts that actually serve the community and in the process, build a network. So sweetfishmedia.com, your podcast is B2B Growth Podcast. I found you on LinkedIn. Find James on LinkedIn. It was an absolute pleasure. Where did I miss and where else can they find you? 
Yeah. So, I mean, check out the book. It's on, you had mentioned it's on Audible. So if you don't read books like Billy and I, you can listen to it on Audible or check it out on Amazon. So content-based networking, or you can just search my name, James Carberry, C-A-R-B-A-R-Y on Audible or Amazon and find the book that way. Um, And then, yeah, love, love connecting with folks on LinkedIn. If you want to email me, james at sweetfishmedia.com, try to make myself really available. If there's something that I've said that's been helpful or that you want to do a deeper dive on, always happy to connect. James, you say it in your book that we don't use the term friendship enough in business. And I fully agree. And again, thank you for your time. Thank you for being on For the Love of Podcast. Thank you so much, Billy. This has been fantastic, man. I'm looking forward to seeing this thing go live. Stop. Don't leave yet. If you made it this far, please listen for just one more minute because I have something to tell you. I can't tell you how much it means that you took the time to listen. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode. So what do I want to tell you? I want to let you know that I'm here to serve you. If you have suggestions, ideas, possible guests, show topics, anything you'd like me to cover on future episodes, please let me know by sending feedback to for the love of podcast forward slash feedback. I want this to be a two-way street, not just me talking. I want to know what you want from this show. Ultimately, you will help decide what this show is and how it best serves you to make better podcasts. If you like this show, let me be blunt. The best payment you can give is to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platforms. This is so important and it will help so much, especially during these early days as the show gets started. One more ask, please consider sharing this show with your friends on social media to help spread the word. All right, that's it. Until next time, please remember everything we do, we do it for the love of podcast.